What's up, everyone? This is Rafael Garcia. On June 20th, 2019, is episode 125 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. I want to say thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Shawan, how are you doing there, sir? I'm doing fine after a week off. It's probably best I wasn't on the show last week. Like I texted you, I would have been unbearable. So it's probably best for the fans not to hear hear that version of Shawan. Yeah, man, you have a no shame in your game. I'm not mad at that, and it's uh, definitely good that you weren't on the show because you would have had a lot, a lot to say about just about everything that went down uh, last weekend. Yeah, yeah, I, I had a, I was, I was killing people on Twitter all night long. So, I just can imagine once I was like, I was too excited. I was like, the show's coming up. I, I, I was just thinking of how I was gonna just go on these legendary rants, and I was like, you know what? Let, you know what? I just don't need to do this. I'm not in the I, right space for this show. <laughs> I've been telling myself lately, sometimes, you know, I've been wanting to tweet out some things and say some things, but I'm like, you know what, sometimes it's good not to hit the send button. It's just good yeah. to say, you know what, I'm not I'm not going to hit the send button on, on this one. I'm going to go ahead and delete this tweet. It, it, it's a good practice every now and then. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of celebrities and politicians need to follow that practice. It's hard. I'm telling you, it's hard sometimes, but every now and then you have to be like, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and sit this one out. It's the trick of social media. It makes you think like, oh, I'm just talking to my friends. I'm just expressing my thoughts. But you're expressing it to millions of people. <laughs> and that's the thing millions people, of people when they do this. But we got a lot to talk about this week. Uh, not so much from a fight perspective, but there is some interesting news bits I want us to jump into. But before we even do that, uh, I want to stop and say uh, that we are finally above. Uh, we have finally hit the mark of 100 subscribers to the MMA ratings. YouTube channel. I checked today and we are at 101. So I want to say thank you for everyone that's taking the time to hit the follow button, hit the subscribe button, and to share our content and like our content wherever you may see it. Uh, if you like our if you like our uh, content on YouTube, if you go and you rate the fights, if you share any of our stories, like or retweet any of our pieces, I want to say thank you for taking the time to do so because every, every little bit helps. And as we continue to work and grow this channel, Every little bit of support helps. So again, if you know someone that may like our content or if you think that uh, we're doing an exceptionally good job, please be sure to share everything that we do and uh, just take a minute to subscribe because everything helps and we're steadily growing. We've been doing this. I've been writing for MMA ratings actually for, I want to say maybe 10 years now. It's at least, at least nine or 10 years I've been writing for um, this platform now. So it's been a minute and Sean and I have been doing the show for maybe about two years now. Um, and some iteration of that we've started probably back in 2014 when me and uh, Roy Billington used to do the show all the way from Ireland. So yeah, like th we've been doing a whole lot since then. And it's sometimes good to take a moment to step back and look at where you come from. But yeah, man, uh, Shawan, we wouldn't be where we are today without you coming in the last couple of years and helping out. We've had some of our biggest shows with you um, on on the at, in the co-host chair doing your damn thing. So thank you as well. Man. Yeah, I, I just appreciate the fact that you let me be a part of it because, you know, I mean, it's something you started. I always tell people, it's not my show. I just get to be a part of it. And you you started, you gave me a platform, and I, I'll be forever grateful for you because I just, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy doing it. I enjoy working with you. And I just enjoy the fact that someone thought enough of what I say or what I do to give me a chance to speak on a, on a regular basis. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, it's definitely been fun. But um, let's go ahead and jump into some of the stories we got for this week. I wanted to start with the Dana White Contender Series, uh, which kicked back off this past Tuesday. And we saw two contracts get handed out, Jorgen DeCastro 
and um, Hulune Soriano, I'm not sure if I'm saying his, his name right, but both of those individuals uh, won contracts for their performance at uh, the Dana White series, Dana White Contender Series this past Tuesday. But the big story probably coming out of this is the fact that Brendan Lonahue did not win a contract as he came into that showcase with, seven, as, with a 17 and 3 professional record and he defeated Bill um, Algeo, who had a 12 and 4 record. So these are two guys who have the types of records of fighters that you would already see within the UFC. And it's probably the, the most interesting conversation coming out of this was Dana White's comments talking about how uh, Brendan and the fact that he was winning that fight was, was going through a, a very tough scrap. The fact that he shot for a takedown with 10 seconds left is basically what disqualified him from getting the contract. And there's a lot to unpack there because you have to really look at this conversation. You have to look at this conversation in a couple of different ways because you have to look at it as uh, what is the goal of the contender series, but also what is in the best interest of these fighters here. And Schwan, I want to start with you kind of before I jump in. What were your thoughts about um, Dana White's comments overall? Well, to me, this is just a continuation of the whole thing with the, you know how we have the fight bonuses, fight of the night, finish of the night, whatever. It, it's the same. I don't know why people were shocked by this. Because when you have these bonuses, you have people who will fight out a character so they can get the extra fifty or a hundred thousand dollars. They'll do things that go against smart strategy or or effective techniques, trying to make an impression that's going to get them paid a little bit extra. And this is just an extension of that. Dana's not thinking about what's best for the fighters. He's thinking about what's best for my company. What's best for his company isn't someone going for a takedown late in the fight or whether they're winning or losing it. What's best for his company is a guy who's dominating a fight, goes in for a finish, either gets a finish or gets spectacularly finished himself. That shows up on ESPN, on Fox Network. That's what everybody's talking about. Those last second KOs, those guys who finished the fight, even though they were total control, that's what he wants. He wants those storylines. He wants that excitement. And the thing about it, the thing that this discussion does is it hurts the argument that mixed martial arts, or at least the UFC as a sport, because it's clear that he's not going for most skillful, most intelligent, most disciplined. He's he wants the most exciting. He wants the most violent. And those two things aren't don't necessarily go in hand in hand with qualifying yourself as a sportsman or being the best in the world. But it's never been about that. It's about selling an art, selling, making an angle and selling a product. So this is great for the UFC guys who will go to the finish or risk their wins to put on a show. But it's bad for the fighters and any fighter I've worked with. I never tell them to put on the show, get a win. We'll put on a show next time. It's all about winning. You win enough, they will get to you. You lose enough, they're going to cut you, no matter how exciting you are. But Dana keeps fooling these fighters into thinking they need to do something that they shouldn't be doing just to get on his good side. But if you lose enough fights, it doesn't matter if you're on his good side or not. He will leave you behind, and it's been shown time and time throughout the history of the UFC. So I wanted to, there's a couple of different things that came to mind as I watched Dana White's rant against Brendan on uh, Tuesday. And the first one is you have to wonder what is a priority to him. Um, obviously, it's putting on great fights. Obviously, like, so I want to take a step back from that, actually, because this show isn't the, it's, it, it isn't the pathway for fighters looking to fight who respect MMA as a sport. Um, and what I mean by that is Brendan knew he was up, knew he was winning that fight. He had suffered damage. He had a broken nose at that point. So he wanted to make sure 
he won and he wanted to secure the victory. That's why he shot uh, Schwan. Your Schwan, stop. Uh, Schwan, stop moving. Stop moving, please. please. Um, your and Brendan knew that he was winning the fight, so he wanted to do what he needed to do to secure the victory, which is what he did in going for that that takedown there. This is not the avenue for fighters with high fight IQ, meaning the, the contender series or um, even the ultimate fighter anymore. You have to be someone who is gregarious, someone who's going to draw eyeballs, someone who's going to draw attention. If you're a, a smart um, strategist going in there fighting the right kind of right kind of battles, you're not going to get picked up in the same in, in the same way because this isn't that space for you. There were a number of men and women, even on that card, who could have gotten a uh, UFC contract, and a lot of them were overlooked for the wrong reasons. Hell, we got Greg Hardy in the UFC simply because he is a name that's going to draw attention. He had no business being uh, brought within the UFC from a contract uh, uh, basis, but we know why he got in, and we also know why Brendan did not get in. So he isn't the type of fighter that the UFC is looking for in this avenue. If they need someone for a last-minute replacement, I'm sure that, that he's the type of guy that they would pick up the phone and call. But he has to really take a step back and decide if that's what he wants to do, if that's what's best for his career. And, and what's interesting is you're seeing something similar happen in pro professional wrestling right now, where a lot of wrestlers are looking at their stake, looking at their career, looking at their status as independent contractors and saying, hmm, I understand that WWE is the, is the biggest um, name in the game, but that may not be the right avenue for me to reach my goals. Maybe I need to go over here to AEW. Maybe I need to go to a Japan. Maybe I need to go to an Impact Wrestling or a, a Ring of Honor to build my name and get money a different way rather than going directly to the WWE and being put in a situation where I don't want to be in. The same thing could be said for uh, UFC fighters. Maybe they go to a Bellator, go to a LFA, go to a One Championship or a Ryzen. Do something a little bit different fight a little bit differently under their own terms and kind of build themselves in a way that's different than jumping directly to the UFC and being put into a box that they may not want to be in. This is a this is a, a stark example of that. And I hope that more men and women who are fighting MMA on the regional circuit or fighting in these other organizations look at this and say, hey, I don't have to look to the UFC as an end-all be-all. Yeah, I, I would agree. It's like we always say, though, I mean, the UFC is going to be around for the next 20 years. Most of these people who are fighting won't be fighting on the big stage for more than maybe the next two to four. You can't afford to treat it like it's a game or treat it like it's a video game or get caught up in the hype of putting on a show and fighting for the UFC. You have to think of it like it's a professional sport with a limited amount of years where you can perform, a limited amount of years where you can make peak money, and a limited amount of years you, you can involve yourself in it before you experience diminishing returns as far as your health and your mental faculties. I mean, football players think about this. Basketball players think about this. Major League Baseball players think about this. If MMA is supposed to be a professional sport, why are the fighters not thinking about this? I understand the three letters. I get it. I get the power Dana holds and getting on his good side, but what does getting on his good side really do for you? There's a lot of guys who he said he liked the way they fight. They're not millionaires. They don't have private jets. They don't even make $100,000 a year. It all comes down to results, and you have to be able to willing to play the long game. You can't sell yourself out for something that doesn't pay this much, really doesn't cover you at all. It only has a limited amount of opportunities. There's only It's not just like, like in football, you could be a good player and still make good money, maybe not a star. Basketball, good player, not a star. 
to really make money in mixed martial arts, you have to be either a great fighter or you have to be a great star. And most people aren't going to be stars in this sport. So you have to start thinking long-term. Look for other avenues or make sure you're fighting in a manner that's going to guarantee that minimizes the damage and gets you to win. Because the fans can cheer and they can do all that stuff. But once you get cut, you get cut. And there's been exciting guys get cut just like there's been boring guys get cut. You have to do what's best for your interests, your finances, and your family. You can't keep trying to impress somebody and, and sending yourself into a tizzy every time it doesn't work the way the way you thought it should. This isn't this this isn't new by the UFC. They've done this for years. Think about the guy who was on the contender series, the heavyweight. He had an spectacular knockout. What was his reward? He didn't get a contract. He got put on the Ultimate Fighter. It, it, it just makes no sense. So you these guys have to start being a little bit more selfish and think about what's in the best interest of their family and their future, not just what'll what'll help the UFC. The UFC is going to be fine with or without you. You will. You need to make sure you're just just as ruthless when you're thinking of yourself. I think what's most interesting is, um, and as we continue to have this conversation, is if you had someone you were building a prospect in your gym or someone you were working with, what is the route you would tell them to take? I look at someone like a Gary Tunin who's out there doing his thing in one championship and building his brand. Uh, in a way that is making him, he's, he's becoming a hot prospect. You know, I think he's won four fights out there already. He's supposed to be fighting for the, the, their, their featherweight title in the next coming months. I think it's September. That's why he couldn't do ADCC. Uh, that is the way he's, like, he's doing the damn thing out there. And, you know, he has his gym in New Jersey. So I'm, I'm not sure what his financial status is like. I don't talk to him like that anymore. But I would be interested in learning about that because I know one FC is, and he's not fighting for free. Um, he's not doing seminars for free. He's not running his gym for free. So I wonder what his status is like and if you compare him to someone like a Ryan Hall who uh, has been in the UFC for a number of years now. I think they fought the same amount of time, time over these over a span of years. I wonder what their uh, payouts are like. So if you had a fighter who was coming up in the ranking, someone who was considered a prospect, what would you tell them to do? Do you tell them to sit out and wait for the UFC or, or jump at the first opportunity? Or do you tell them to look at other avenues to help build their career? The first thing I, I'm always going to tell, the route I'm always going on is learning how to fight intelligently, learning fundamentals, and learning how to actually protect yourself. Not beat someone up, protect yourself. Because regardless of whether it's a short notice fight, it's a contender's fight, or it's an actual, I had a whole training camp UFC fight, knowing how to fight the right way, being trained the right way, being prepared and disciplined the right way is going to always keep down injuries, enhance your chances of winning, and and even if you lose, make sure you don't lose a certain cuz there's losing a fight in the UFC and then there's losing a fight. You know, you know the difference. You've been around fighters. There's guys who've lost split decisions and guys who've gotten beaten half to death. There's a difference and fighters need to know that. As far as the opportunities, it depends on where the fighter's at. What happens is, and I, I can tell you this, I can't tell you names, but I can tell you this, I've worked with camps that have had fighters that were on the UFC's radar. And these guys are trying to push their fighter into the UFC, even though he's not ready, because they know that if they have a UFC fighter, that'll up their, that'll up the money, up the money they get paid. That'll give them a chance to, you know, speak to magazines, speak to ESP. And if their fighter goes on win streak, that, that ups their brand. And it also will bring in casuals from around, their area who are going to want to fight at the gym that the UFC fighters go to. All the hobbyists go there. Oh, you can spar with a UFC fighter. You can sit in a class with a UFC fighter. So they push fighters in a manner that they're not ready for because they're trying to get their camp 
their coaching, their their coaching style, their name out there, and they sacrifice the fighter because they have another twenty five fighters. That fighter's only got one career, so they'll sometimes sacrifice fighters. They won't admit it, but essentially that's what they're doing because the guy's not ready. Secondly, what they do is they don't build fighters correctly. There's a process to developing a fighter and how you train them and the fights you you match them up with and the opponents and the in the different forms and the different events you fight them in. There's a process. They keep trying to skip steps because everybody wants to get the UFC or Bellator maybe because that's where the money is. Then you can't skip steps because when you do, the fighter ultimately pays for that. That fighter fails, you get another fighter. Eventually, you'll hit the lottery and you'll you'll have an op- a platform to operate on. But they're not doing what's in the best interest of the fighter. I would only want the fighter taking UFC fights, depending on who the opponent is, depending on that fighter's skill set, developing, depending on how many of the holes that fighter had at the beginning, how many of them been addressed, how much experience have I got in this fighter. I'm not just putting you out there just for the sake that you can say you fought in the UFC. What if you can fought in the UFC and get knocked out brutally in one round? Is that something to be brag about? Is that something to be proud of? No, you have to do it correctly. But too many people are skipping steps because they think the UFC is some kind of solution to their problems or an opportunity to build their brand off a fighter. So it's all about preparation and development so that when they get the opportunity, they can make the most of it. And win or lose, they don't take life-altering or career-altering damage. And I've had these conversations with fighters. I literally argued with a coach who, this, his fighter was on the UFC's radar, and he had lost four fights in a row. He won three fights because he got back to using his jab. I told him, you need to work on your jab, use your counters, and use your defense. His coach was telling him, that's boring. The UFC won't pay for that. And I'm like, there's a good chance the UFC is not going to pick you anyways. You have to protect your chin. You have to protect your durability. You have to protect the talent you have. And getting in wars, every other fight is not going to do that. It's not going to extend your career. But his own coach was telling him, don't use a jab. Don't counter people. Don't use your footwork. And he had great footwork and a great jab and great defense. But he wanted him in firefights. How long are you going to last? Not everybody can be Justin Gaethje. So he's trying to get this guy in firefights on the regional level. He's going to fight the same way at the higher level, and he's going to get blown out as a result of it. But that's what his professional paid coach is telling him to do. That's, like, irresponsible. So the last question I want to ask in reference to this before we move on to another topic is what should we expect of – the Dana White contender series now? Is this a situation where we aren't looking for the best prospects or we're not looking for the right type of prospects? We're looking for men and women that are wanting to come out there and sling, sling fix the cuffs until their heads get knocked off. What should we be expecting from this show going forward? Because we just kicked off this year's season. Well, there's a part of me who thinks that Dana might have just said this just to get, get more publicity. Like he, even though it fits in his narrative, by saying this, how, how much extra publicity has he gotten from all the MMA outlets and the, the non-MMA outlets as a result of this? Everybody's talking about it. We're talking about it. All the big, all the other shows are talking about it. Fighters are talking about it. Casuals are talking about it. Hardcores are talking about it. So he's done his show a great service now because now nobody knows. When, when we watch fights now, we're even more invested now. That guy was knocking. Oh, she's close to knocking around. Oh, she got a takedown. Oh, my God. She just cost herself a contract. Now we're emotionally involved. So there's a part of me that thinks he did this on purpose. But really what this show is for, it's like the Ultimate Fighter without the unnecessary drama and with better with better athletes and better skilled fighters. Because at a certain point, the Ultimate Fighter had the best prospects, and then it started just getting characters and personalities. The Contender Series, you don't really get to show much of your personality unless you're a certain caliber of fighter. So you're getting better fights. You're getting young, hungry fighters who want it. 
and you're getting to see some guys who, even if they don't make it on the show, or guys who can build a fan base because they've been on the show now. And now people on the regional circuit might come out to see them because they think they're close to being a UFC fighter. So what you're, you're going to get what you expect to get out of it. Good fights, young, hungry fighters with people who have the athletic ability and technical skill to possibly be in the UFC. If you're looking for anything else like fairness or, um, I don't know, a good luck story or, or something like that, you're, you're at the wrong form. This is strictly, strictly a show for people who want to see violence at the highest level between people who want that UFC contract. So you're supposed to get violence at the highest level because they're hungry. And that, that's, that's what it's here for. It's here to satiate that need where you don't have the spoiled stars, but you also don't have a bunch of people who are characters trying to fit a role so that they can get TV time. Okay, good thoughts there, sir. Good thoughts. Um, let's move on to some, another, uh, I guess, conversation point that's, uh, what's the word? Um, linked to the story as well with UFC Apex, where the UFC announced that they are opening up a 130 square foot facility in Las Vegas is near their, uh, their main base in the city. 50,000 of it is, is uh, converted to production space, 70,000 for office space. And this is a quote from Dana White. The facility gives us the flexibility to try new things and push the envelope on producing and distributing combat sports all over the world. We are limited only by my imagination, my imagination. When you think of where we started and where we are now, it's pretty incredible, but we haven't even scratched the surface of how big this will become. Craig Borassi, who's the UFC executive vice president of production, he also said with UFC Apex, we're future-proofing the way we produce and distribute our content. The combination of the state-of-the-art technology with this enormous high configurable arena space gives us the opportunity to host other live events beyond combat sports. UFC Apex allows us to branch UFC Apex allows us to branch out and creating other forms of, of in-demand sports and entertainment content uh, anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world. Swan, you there? Yes, sir. Okay, so in looking at this piece here, it's there's a lot to unpack about this um, about this now. You have UFC Apex, which is a 130-square-foot facility, which is clearly going to help boost the way that organization does business. I mean, they're gonna be able to hold, host sporting events, concerts, stage shows, esports events, a whole bunch of different types of events in their facility there. My first thought in listening and reading about this press release and, and, and reading about this, uh, or listening to the, to the press conference about it and reading the uh, information about UFCS Apex is, A, where did the money come from this and how will it benefit the fighters? Because we know what the fighter salaries are. We know that this is a constant conversation about fighters not getting paid enough and the UFC taking more and more of the revenue share. Now we have another, not only do we have the Performance Institute, which was meant to help fighters in a backwards way, I believe it's, it's something more. And I tweeted out about that with um, Trent earlier this week. But this is, another, this is another growth opportunity for the UFC that doesn't benefit the fighters long-term because the UFC still has the ability to say who's, who, which fighters will be featured in this production um, center and which ones will not, uh, how will they use this office space. Like, none of that benefits the fighters directly. 
as a, as someone who, you know, I'm not gonna say we're in the main media here, but we definitely have some involvement within the sport. Should there be a concern from the fighter standpoint that this is going on and there's no talk about how their compensation is going to grow in any way, shape, or form? There should be, but I'm beginning to think that some of these fighters just aren't very either very aware or or they're in denial. It's one or the other. I don't understand how anybody ha- hasn't understood the jig that the UFC has had going for essentially the entirety of its run. They've limited fighters in their ability to establish their brand, correct? You got to wear the same outfit, same uniforms. They control all the press things. You can't get random sponsorships. They cut all that out, right? But the UFC determines who they get sponsored by, and the UFC always proceeds and follows any fighter who's going to be on a show or get any news press, good or bad. It's former UFC fighter, current UFC champion, UFC contender. The UFC essentially has turned itself into a brand and all the fighters are just people who happen to be connected in an ancillary ancillary way with the brand. The fighters don't have real fan bases. And when I say fan base, I mean paying customers who will impact pay-per-view if they don't fight who will impact pay-per-view if they're not getting paid, who will impact the bottom line if their fighter isn't talked to with a certain amount of respect or treated in a certain way. The UFC shut all that down because they saw what happened in basketball, football, and boxing, et cetera, et cetera. So now the UFC is the brand. You can have a UFC performance center, which is just, which is just the commercial for the UFC. You can have UFC business events, which is just a commercial for the UFC. You can have a UFC sponsored concert, which is just a commercial for the UFC. Since they established this brand, what can you do when you become a brand? You can branch out. That's what fighters want to do. Become a brand so I can act, so I can make music, so I can write movies, so I can train people, so I can be an announcer. If you become a brand, you can branch out and you can have other avenues of income. The UFC ended all of that for the fighters. And now the UFC, which is a multi-billion dollar business, has now found a way to diversify their earnings. But the fighters have found no way to diversify their earnings through the UFC. It, it's it's so bad it's almost comical that nobody saw this. And the worst thing about it is fighters did this to themselves because they only care about themselves. And they didn't come up with any sort of group effort where they could make sure they were taken care of. They just let this happen as long as the UFC gave me a bonus or took care of my salary or took care of my contract. The hell with everybody else. And they've given up all their power and they don't. this isn't going to help the fighters at all. I mean, they'll be attached to it, but they can't directly benefit from any of this. I don't know if UFC fighters can afford to buy stock in the UFC for Christ's sake. I mean, it, 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 this is just bad. It's bad on the UFC, and it's embarrassing the fighters haven't seen this coming. I mean, a couple did. Leslie Smith knew this was coming. Conor McGregor knew this was coming. Others knew it was coming. But the rest of them either were in denial or they just, just weren't aware enough because they've essentially lost all their power because the UFC is branded and taking over everything. There was an interesting uh, bit of content that Luke Thomas put out this past week, or maybe it was last week, uh, using game theory to talk about why fighters are not unionized. He had a GW grad student on. I was talking about that. And when you look at what fighters are doing and how, like you mentioned, they're out for themselves, they, it, it's, far, it's a very far shot that they will actually unionize in any way, shape, or form. So when you look at the UFC saying, okay, 
we're going to develop this UFC Apex facility that isn't really going to benefit you guys. Um, it's going to benefit the organization. Like, like they said, it's future-proofing the UFC, not necessarily future-proofing uh, any other fighters, the people who make or break that organization. And you have to wonder if anyone's having those conversations. Is anyone other than a Leslie Smith on the phone right now saying, hey, guys, we need to have a conversation about this because they're breaking in all types of money right now and they're doing all these different things that may not necessarily directly benefit us. So some people have to be asking those conversations. But like you said, I don't think anyone is. I don't think anyone really is pushing that envelope out of fear of rocking the boat. And that's really unfortunate because while UFC Apex is huge, I, I love when I love the movement that a lot of organizations are taking and bringing production in-house. I think that's huge. And the development of platforms such as YouTube and streaming services and making that grow. I, I love that aspect of it. But there's a big question mark around compensation for people who are involved. And we know fighters are not being compensated their fair share. We know that, especially when you compare that to other major sports. So when you see that, you have to ask, where is this money coming from and how is it going to benefit the fighters? Because right now, I think the answer is it's not. The, the thing with the fighters is, and Luke Thomas, everybody can say all these nice things. Fighters are scared. The fact of the matter is, in, in life, because you're an adult, I'm an adult. In life, everybody's not going to win. And when you're trying to evoke change, everybody is not going to be remembered as a hero or fondly or get the benefits of it. You're not doing it for that. When you do social change, you're not doing it just so you win. You're doing it so your kids' kids and other people you know who suffer are going to win. That's what they do with racial stuff, with whether it's about sexuality, whether it's about gender stuff. You're not doing it just for you. You're doing it so it's a better world for the people ahead of you. But the mixed martial arts fighters, they don't want to do that. They want to make a sacrifice, but they also want to benefit from the sacrifice. And that's not how it works. It's not. When Martin Luther King did his thing, there were lots of people who gave their lives and went to jail and got beat by cops. They're all, they, don't, they all don't have holidays. They all don't have articles. They're not all cherished as heroes, but they did it because they knew it was going to help the world, push the world forward and benefit people other than themselves. In the UFC, in the MMA, nobody wants to take the hit. Everybody wants to take a stand and benefit from that stand. And that's not how it works. Somebody has to be willing to ruin their career, to get blackballed, to walk away from the sport so that they're forced to move forward. But not enough people are willing to do that and not enough big enough stars are willing to do that. That's what it comes down to. They want the fans to complain. Dude, it's your career. Why aren't you complaining? Like That's like me getting upset because somebody ain't helping my kids. They're your kids. You help them. How are you? How do I look asking somebody else to help my kids when I ain't willing to help them? You know, it's it's plain and simple. They want the fans to do the battle for them, and it just doesn't work that way. Somebody's got to put their career and their livelihood and their name on the line to make a difference. And as of yet, nobody's been willing to do it. They just keep giving the UFC power. Think think about how many guys have lost, left their camps to go train at UFC performance clinics. They used to have a a strength and conditioning coach at their camp, but now they go to the UFC camp. You're just giving away any leverage you have. Now, now if you perform well, what am I, what am I going to attribute that to? The UFC, you're at their performance institute, you're training with their coaches, you're training with their strength and conditioning coaches, you're training with their dietitians, and you look better than ever? It must be the UFC's fault. It's like they just give away power, and then they complain on the back end because nobody wants to take the risk of, with their career, with their money, to make a change. Leslie Smith was willing to do it. Ally Quinta did for a period of time. Everybody else, 
They just complain about it after or when they when they're not popular enough or good enough for people to care. That's when they want to speak out. You're on a five fight losing streak. You're out of the UFC. Oh, the UFC treated me terribly. Where was all that talk when you were on the winning streak, dude? Where was all that talk when you had a title? That's when I needed to hear it. That's when people were listening. Nobody wants to hear now because now Dana's going to say you're a burnout who's complaining because they couldn't hack it. You needed to speak out when he was singing your praises, but nobody wanted to do that. And it just constantly kicks these guys in the butt. And I feel bad for them, but I only feel so bad because they won't do the heavy lifting themselves. They want somebody else to fight that battle for them. So what's interesting, okay, so we just got a, a special guest who hopped in the show for us. Um, our, the man behind the scenes, I guess, is what we're gonna call him from now, the guy who keeps us all in check, who keeps um, Schwann from saying something out of line. Michael Ford, how you doing there, sir? He's in the Fury. <laughs> Mike, you got a lot of background noise right there for me. Uh, can you hear me? All right, let's try this again. Let's try this again. All right, so I'm going to mute him for right now until he can get his um, sound together over there. But, Shawan, we're going to keep the story moving because there's one other story that's linked to this UFC Apex. Uh, development and that's uh, UFC and boxing, we or Zufa boxing, I guess we should call it because we continue to hear news about this growing. And uh, Dana White was also asked about this uh, recently, I think over during that same press conference. And it seems like this is getting closer, according to Dana White. We're going to see some movement on this development later on this year after uh, the summer, which is like, uh, I mean, summer starts tomorrow, so we're right there. I, what are your thoughts about this? Because we're going to see a, a relaunch of UFC Fight Pass as well, and I'm wondering if we're going to head, we're heading for a time where Fight Pass becomes more like uh, the Zone or something else, where we already see the UFC streaming events like EBI, we see them streaming events like Glory, uh, they streamed Roy, a couple of Roy Jones boxing fights. Do you think we're heading to a situation where Fight Pass becomes a platform where bigger boxing events are? streamed and what does that mean for some of the bigger name fighters in the uh industry first of all i could have sworn this seems like something where the ufc is related and they're yet adding another stream of income to themselves wow okay now we know where it's at um the only thing i know for sure is going to happen with this boxing thing is the mma fighters are going to be real angry when they see the paychecks that the UFC is going to shell out for, for boxers. And they're going to say, why did I get in this ridiculous sport when these guys who, who are, got 15 fights and haven't beat anybody are getting paid two, three, and four times more than I am? That's going to happen because the UFC can't come into boxing and dictate salary. These guys aren't going to be fighting for five and five, eight and five. Nobody's doing that. That ain't happening. So the UFC is going to have to pay, and their fighters are going to watch these boxers come in and get paid right more right off the bat than they made at the peak of their careers. And it is going to be hilarious how angry some of these guys are going to be when they see the paychecks these guys are getting cut. As far as the streaming, it's a smart move. I mean, pay-per-view is really hard to make money off of unless you have big stars, Manny Pacquiao, Canelo. Most guys can't sell pay-per-view. The best fighters in the world, Terrence Crawford can't sell pay-per-view. Errol Spence was on a was on a pay-per-view that sold 300000 That's not because of Errol Spence. Nobody cares about Errol Spence. As good a fighter as he is, he was fighting a popular, undefeated Mexican fighter. That's why he sold. So 
with these streaming things, you can get people to sign up for your product, your your content, and you don't have to bear some of the burdens of the pay-per-view model. The only thing is you have to maintain a certain amount of customers and you have to constantly bring in customers, get people to re-up with you to balance out how much money you're going to have to spend to bring in people who are who move the needle enough for you to for you to draw interest you know you want to bring in like espn brought in tyson fury he costs a lot of money so but he's got a great personality and charisma so he balances that out uh canelo they brought him into the zone but canelo's had to take some fights that he probably wouldn't have taken right off the bat because he is popular as he is people want to see him in tough fights so he can only get so many soft fights or maintenance fights because we have subscribers and they're not going to keep on showing up if you keep on fighting Rocky Fielding. You gotta give us a name, you gotta give us what we want, you gotta give us tough matchups. That's why he fought Danny Jacobs. That's most likely why he's gonna fight Golovkin again. Because that's what fans want to see and they need subscribers and the only way they can get them and keep them is if they give them what they want. So on one instance it's great because it'll force it'll get the fights we want. It'll get good matchups. Another instance it gets the fighters paid because they'll be getting paid up front. But for the mixed martial artists this is this is bad. I don't think it works for them at all. And I think they're on the back end of this and it's just going to suck for them. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Um, because we know, but it's interesting because uh, one of the things that the UFC is going to hold first at Apex is an amateur boxing event. Actually, Dana White's son is going to be fighting on that card according to Mr. White himself. And um, it's interesting because boxers aren't going to come cheap. And the minute we see these guys getting these big multi-million dollar contracts, I hope fighters, the MMA fighters on roster raise all type of hell. Will they? I don't, they don't know. They don't no if they raise hell, they ain't got no leverage. Just like when you raise hell in your parents' house. You slam the door. <laughs> good point. Good point. Very good point. Very good point. You slam the doors that, that they pay for. Um, but it is, it is a good... It's, it's going to be interesting to see how this kind of rolls out after September. I'm looking forward to it. I hope they, I hope it's successful because I'm always a fan of sports business growing in one way or another. So let's see how it, it kind of goes. But I think it's going to raise some interesting conversations around how the UFC is doing business. I just want to say one more thing. If your name isn't Conor McGregor, who made hundreds of millions fighting Floyd Mayweather, or Yoel Romero, who, su- who sued USAD and got $27 million because they, they incorrectly tested him, you can't afford to walk away from the mixed martial arts, from MMA or UFC. You don't make enough money. Nobody in there has made life-changing money. I mean, they have people, who, managers at McDonald's who make the same thing as top UFC fighters. So what are they going to do, walk away? I guess. But if they're going to walk away from that, they could have walked away from a union. I mean, they really have no leverage in any of this. It's comical how they've done this to themselves. And I say that as a person who's a fan of every fighter, every camp, because it's a hard way to make a living. But it is comical how they gave away so much power to the point they can't even do they can't even do anything except walk away. And the UFC will just replace them with another fighter. Very true there, very true. So I wanna take a second to reintroduce Michael to the conversation. I think his sound should be good to go. Let me see if I can get him squared away here. Um, Mike, can you unmute your mic for me? Let's see if I can get him unmute Michael. Am I the only person that's hearing that? No, you are not. That I hear too. Mike, you there?
Mike, I'm gonna try it one more time. All right, nope, not even, I don't know what it is. I, I can't fix it from this end. Um, yeah, we're gonna keep it moving because I just can't fix it. <laughs> so let's talk about some fight previews for this weekend. We have three fights really interest me across two, of, across two events. We have Bellator London and UFC Greenville, which is going on this weekend. And it's pretty interesting because a lot of these uh, events don't jump off the card to me. But three fights really stood out. The first is Gegard Mousasi versus Rafael Lovato Jr. And the reason why this is important to me because Rafael Lovato is known as one of the greatest American black belts of all time. He's the second person to win uh, worlds behind BJ Penn. But he's even much more pivotal than that because he continues to win. He continues to compete on the grappling scene, trouncing guys left and right. So I think this is a big moment because we – I. I think Musashi is going to win just because I think a lot of this fight, I think he has the ability to keep this fight standing for a longer period of time to do enough scoring. He has the ability to keep the fight standing to do more scoring. And if the fight hits the ground, he can protect himself a little bit better than a lot of the other guys that Lovato has fought. But I would not be surprised if Lovato found a way to get a submission victory. What are your thoughts about this fight here? And who do you see coming out on, on top? Um, it's a much better close fight than people think. Lovato, is a good athlete. He's got good striking. I recall, I think he was training boxing. He might have competed for a little while. He's beyond sublime on the ground. The biggest advantage that Musasi really has is just the experience. It's not so much that Musasi is a, a great athlete to me. I mean, he's, he's not a bad athlete. He's got some power. He's got a bunch of all-round skills. But the thing is, he's competed in almost every form of combat sport, and he's faced almost every single type of fighter. Now, maybe he hasn't faced a fighter with I mean, he hasn't faced a fighter of Lovato's pedigree on the ground, but he's faced guys of a similar nature, guys of, with a similar skill set. So he won't. He, there's never any circumstance where he's going to be taken completely unaware by an opponent. And the freedom that knowing you can fight in every range makes fighting less stressful. It makes you burn less energy because there's nowhere you have to be to succeed. You can succeed or at least hold your own in every spot. So you don't have to spend that extra energy scrambling to get back to your feet because you know you can hang out for a little bit. You don't have to force fights to the ground because you know you can hang on the feet. You don't have to you don't have to avoid fight. You don't have to avoid the ground because you know you can grapple. And and that's that's the biggest advantage he has almost everybody because he's fought so many fights and so many organizations against such a high caliber of opponent. It's hard to really hit him with something that he hasn't seen coming. It's hard to throw something at him that he hasn't seen coming. That being said, he hasn't looked spectacular in Bellator. You know, I mean, he almost lost his first fight. He had his eye busted up pretty bad. It went to decision, and, and it's a fight that a lot of people thought he could have lost. And then he, he won the actual title, but the guy he fought really didn't have any wrestling or grappling chops. That was a easy fight. And even though he fought Rory, Rory McDonald, technically that's a difficult fight. But Rory McDonald is smaller than him, a, a worse athlete than him. And even though Rory's very experienced, Musashi's even more so, and he's taking less beatings. So out of the three fights he's had, all of them were pretty favorable matchups as far as the athleticism, the size, and the actual development and depth of skill. Against Lovato Jr. is the first time he's going to be facing a guy who can challenge him in wrestling and challenge him in grappling. It'll be the first time where he won't have clear advantages against a guy in, in, in that circumstance. And I think that makes a big difference in how this fight goes. It's essentially if 
if Lovato Jr.'s wrestling can be a big enough threat, not just to get the takedown, but to limit the strikes that Musasi uses, I believe that he can get his own strikes going, and I believe he can out-hustle him to a decision, maybe a possible finish if Musasi isn't, exact, isn't 100% focused. And I think that sometimes he, he might have an air of arrogance where he feels he's that much better than the guys he's facing in Bellator. And I think Lovato Jr. is a, a, real, a real challenge for him. I think he, he has a real chance of winning this fight. It's just a matter of can he fight a disciplined fight and can he evoke enough of his grappling and wrestling to limit Musashi's ability to get off offensively and maybe open up some lanes for him defensively where he can exploit Musashi's defense because Musashi's not used to having to fight really on all three levels. Most guys are two-dimensional fighters. Musashi's a three-dimensional fighter. So he's always able to mix things up and force guys to work harder than they should. I think Lovato Jr. has got enough depth to his game that he can actually um, put Musashi in some bad spots. And, and I'm thinking he might, be, he might be able to get a finish. If he doesn't get knocked out, I think he can get a finish. So you're looking at Musashi to get the win via finish there? No, I, I, you know, I'm going to – I feel a little crazy. I, I think Lovato Jr. is going to surprise him. Interesting there because I'm, I'm pretty intrigued to see how this fight kind of plays out. Uh, I have a lot of faith in Lovato, but I, I wonder if he's going to be able to get the fight down to the ground. We've seen um, Musashi get submitted by Jacare, um, and a lot of people are kind of using that as the baseline. But we know that Musashi was hurt coming in as a fight, and he couldn't really uh, defend like he wanted to. So it'll be interesting to see where this where this situation plays out because Lovato hits a lot of submissions from a lot of uh, what's the unorthodox positions, which I think is very important a lot of positions that you can't train for because you just don't um, see them coming. So I'm really interested in seeing how this fight kind of plays out over five rounds. Yeah, that, that's one of the things. Lovato Jr. has um, a lot of creativity, and, he, and I believe he has enough athleticism. It, the real question is, can he make Musasi feel threatened enough by his, his grappling where it's going to open up the striking exchanges? Musasi is expecting him to grapple. Musasi is expecting him to force the fight, but Musashi also believes his wrestling and his counter-wrestling, along with his striking, is going to be enough to scare Lovato Jr. off because he believes by the time he gets to the ground, he'll be able to beat him up, wear him out, control him, and maybe take over, much like um, Demetrius Johnson did to uh, – I can't remember the guy he fought in the UFC who was a black belt, but in a similar nature to that. So what Lovato Jr. has got to do is get enough respect from the feet but mix it up enough so that he, he can keep Musashi off balance. Because like I said before, Musashi's hasn't faced a guy routinely who can challenge him in multiple ranges. So if Lovato Jr. can challenge him in multiple ranges, he doesn't have to win, just challenge him enough to open up the uh, open up the opportunities in other ranges. He can put him in bad spots. I think he has enough power to knock him out. I think Musashi is a little shop-worn. And with his transitions and his scrambling ability, I think he can find a submission, even against the guy's experience as Musashi. Musashi's experience in mixed martial arts, but the level of skill is nowhere, they're nowhere near each other. Good thoughts there, sir. So let's look at the no next fight that stood out to me. Paul Daly versus Eric Silva. How fast is someone going to sleep in, in this fight? Is it going to be one round or is it going to be two? Uh, I mean, unless we see NCAA Paul Daly, it probably shouldn't go more than a round. It, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't go. May, you know what? Maybe two. Silva's, Silva is an experienced enough fighter that he shouldn't get just get blown out by anybody. So um, I'll say it goes about a round and a half. 
a round and a half. That's what you got. Who is going to win? I, I'm going with, with Daly just because we know that Silva's chin is just not the same as it once was. Yeah, I have, I'd have to agree with you. I have to go with Daly. I guess there's an off chance that maybe Silva goes grappler on him and takes Daly down and submits him. But given who's the harder hitter, who's looked better against the better competition, and who's, who's the better competition, you have to go with Daly. Yeah, it seems like Paul Daly's some of Paul Daly's shots look like they ripped people's face apart. And I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if we saw that same thing go down uh this weekend. Uh the other fight I wanted to talk about is over in the UFC where we got Chen Chen Sun Jung against uh Renato uh, Moicano. This is probably the most important fight of all those that are going on this weekend. And I am intrigued on your thoughts about this fight because uh Chen Sun Jung is an interesting guy where you know, we we didn't get to see his. It's kind of like, are we are we still about to see his prime? Is he still in his prime? Because we didn't get to see uh, a lot of that due to his um, commitments being Korean within the military. I mean, he's 32 years of age and he missed uh, he missed four years of action. So, what are your thoughts about uh, Chan Sun Jung and what version of him are we going to see on Saturday? I just think he's taking a lot of damage. And I think he has a lot of skill. I think he's got a lot of experience, but he's just taken so much damage, especially in that last fight, the last thing KO. Even, even though he got KO, the damage he took in that fight, it makes me question how much more he has left in him because he hasn't really had any easy fights. There's no fights where he's just blown through a guy and submitted him, knocked out a guy easily. It's always been a struggle. And now he's facing another guy who could finish him, another guy who's durable, another guy who likes to fight at a certain pace and has a skill set that's going to require him to take something to get some. And my concern is that his he leans heavily on his ability to force a pace and to take a lot of abuse. I don't know how much he can lean on that anymore, given the wars he's been through, the, the injuries, the time off, and the various other things that have happened in his career. So this should be a good fight while it lasts, but if his chin is, in, is 10% less than what it used to be, he's not going to be the fighter he's not going to be able to fight at the level that he's been fighting at for the past two, three, four years. He has to be able to take punishment and recover from it and maintain a pace that allows him to make up for some of the la the lacking he has defensively. A lot of it is just volume and aggression along with offensive skill. So if he can't, if he can't catch like he pitches, this fight won't go three rounds, even though Moicano is not the kind of guy who's a knockout kind of puncher or knockout striker or a finisher of any sort, not really. Do you see Moicano as a future title challenger? I do not. To be quite honest, just being blunt, I do not. Give me one second. I need to reset my thing real quick. Okay. Well, that's an interesting breakdown there about why uh, I'm looking at, I'm going to look for more as to why he doesn't see Moicano there as a title challenger. That's probably a conversation we'll have on future shows because a lot of people are really kind of pinning him as someone who could eventually challenge for that featherweight crown. Uh, it kind of bounces off of uh, the way a lot of people were surprised that he lost to Jose Aldo uh, when they faced off back uh, a couple months ago. But uh, that's really all from a fight standpoint I was looking forward to this weekend. There's a lot of women fight women's matches going on this weekend, so there's going to be a lot of um, great action kind of report out of there. But outside of that, this isn't one of those weekends where there is a must-see fight. It's for me, if I had to pick one, I'm, I'm going with the Gegard Busasi 
uh, Jose Aldo Vato fight. I'm going there because that that's going to be the one fight that I would pick as a as a as a must see action from this weekend. But with that in mind, man, Shawan, let everybody know what you're working on for this week. Um, I'm writing. I'm writing an article. Don't blame me. Blame your manager. Talking about how some of the hottest prospects in mixed martial arts have been terribly mishandled, and I'm also uh, still working on my piece about Michelle Watterson and the thing, the the biggest points that have contributed to her win streak, as she's gone from afterthought to potential title contender. True, true. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that piece. We've had a lot of talks about. Uh, Michelle Waterson. I think uh, I don't. I don't. While I do not think she'll become champion, I think it'll be interesting to see her um, finally get that opportunity if it ever does come. I think she has to play this, play this, play this role out right because I don't think she wants to take another fight before getting a title shot. Because if she gets placed in there with someone like a uh, Joanna Janjacek or a Rose Nami Yunus looking for a rebound fighter or something like that. I think that that's just not the fight that she wants to take right now. She needs a top four fighter in mixed martial arts. Um, you said the most beatable top four fighter? She's not even top yeah, four. Yeah. She's number seven. Oh, okay. Well, she's the most beatable top ten. And why I'm going to argue that. I mean, she she's fighting the wrong weight class. If she's a weight class down, she might be a dominant champion, but not in this weight class. There's There's a lot of girls who can beat her, and she's just been managed to not fight those girls. Somehow she's avoided all those girls. She took the Khabib Nurmagomedov route to the title to a contendership because he didn't fight anybody before he got to his top ranking either. Yeah, she's ranked number seven in the division right now, and the reason number three. That I mean, well, when you look at the division though, Rose Namajunas she just dropped the title and she said she doesn't want to return yet. Tatiana Suarez, she's having neck issues that may be more serious than we want to talk about. Nina um, Ansaroff, she's coming off that loss. Iranian Jacek is the only one that's there that doesn't have a fight. Claudia Gadelia has a fight coming up. Then there's um, Weili Zhang, who just got the uh, title shot. Next up is uh, Michelle Watterson. Tisha Torres has a fight coming up. Um, Cynthia Calvillo has a, has a fight coming up. And I think Carla Esparza does not. But that's the top 10. If anything, if they could get her against Carla Esparza, I would take that fight if I was her. Anyone else out of this group? Maybe a Claudia Gadelia, she can outwork over three rounds. Anyone else out of this group? I don't think she should fight. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. Esparza would be a dangerous fight for her, though. Yeah, I mean, that's but that's the most winnable. Outside of that Claudia Gadelia fight, that's the most winnable out of that group. Yeah, maybe... If it, yeah, I mean, if, even if she fought like a Cynthia Calvillo, maybe she can outsmart and outpoint her over three rounds. Yeah, I, Michelle's just in a bad spot where she's a big name. She gets a lot of publicity, a lot of opportunities. She's on a win streak, and she's just good enough to beat a certain caliber of fighter, but, but she's vulnerable to everybody. All her wins haven't been dominant. She could have lost any one of those fights. So, She's got to tread very carefully if she wants to stay in title contention because she's with her given the lack of size and power she has, everybody she faces is dangerous. You saw how she reacts when Rose hit her. That's that's not the normal reaction of a girl at that weight class. I know Rose hits hard. Rose don't hit that hard. Yeah, I mean, well, we we we've we've seen what what she's been able to do, but um I am working on a lot of content from a professional wrestling and MMA standpoint. I'm trying to get more content out there. So I was actually scheduled to do an interview today with a um, prospect 
in MMA, but I have not heard back from him. So I'm not sure that's going to go down today. But uh, expect more interviews on this show. Expect more content. I'm going to be doing a, um, a wrestling podcast tomorrow and on Sunday to recap uh, a pay-per-view this weekend. So, yeah, just keep, keep your eye on MMARatings.net where you will see all of our channel, all of our content each and every week. And as always, guys, we thank you um, for your continued support. Resting. That, that, that's the NAR. That's what he's telling you, fam. I will be doing everything except sitting down and relaxing. That's what he's telling you. That's his Raphael speak for, I, I don't care. I don't give a damn about y'all's concerns. I'm going to work anyway. Just to clarify for y'all. I mean, yeah, that's pretty much it. And it's funny because I took, I took Friday off for my 9 to 5, and I'm probably going to be sitting here doing more work. I'm going – I know I'm going to go lift in the morning. I almost volunteered to teach uh, Nogi tomorrow night. And, yeah, you know, it is what it is. You're the only guy who takes off work to work. Listen to yourself, man. You're right. Oh, oh wait. Before, before we end the show, I have to say one last thing. Please, I just need to get this off my chest. Aaron Pico's team has should be brought up on criminal charges for allowing him to sabotage his own career. I know he's a world-class wrestler. I know he can box. I know he's a great athlete. You do not let an initial young rookie fighter determine the level of opponent they are going to face. I don't care that they want to face the best. I don't care that they think they can beat the best. Your job as a manager is to protect him, to develop him, and allow him the time to maximize his career, maximize his earning, and get into potential to have big fights and eventually if get a title or at least contend for a title. His management team has failed completely in every single aspect of management. They brought him in too tough, and instead of taking a step back, they kept fighting him tough, and he's been getting knocked out left and right, and you went from a guy who's going to be an all-time great to a guy who might be the biggest bust in the history of mixed martial arts. That is a terrible job, and they should be ashamed of themselves. And I hope that everybody understands. I'm not bashing managers, but they get paid money for a reason. And if they're not doing their job, they shouldn't get paid. And I do not think they did a very good job with Aaron Pico. I don't care about his will to win and his desire to be the greatest. You have to take steps, and you can't skip them in anything, much less a combat sport. They try to skip steps, and now his whole career is in jeopardy as a result. I yeah, I, I, I like that analogy about skipping steps because if you look at how Bubba Jenkins, Ed Ruth, Dylan Dennis, Neiman Gracie, uh, Valerie Laterno, uh, not Valerie, uh, Valerie Lareda, um, so many different prospects were brought in at Bellator and built up. And, uh, Aaron Pico got none of that. He's fighting guys who, if Bellator had rankings, would probably be ranked within those um, divisions that he's out there getting smoked. Yep. It's, it's, it's gotten to the point now he's at the Gray Maynard point. And I, I, I like Gray Maynard, but by the time Gray Maynard started learning how to fight appropriately and fight with intelligence, his margin of error was gone. His chin was gone. He couldn't take abuse. So you'd see him fighting better technically than he ever had, but still getting knocked out. And that's what you saw with Aaron Pico. I was tweeting the fight. I said, he's going for the takedowns. If he doesn't diversify it, he's going to get knocked out. Half a second later, knocked out. He has no margin for error because he's had, he suffered brutal knockouts. And we don't know that he had a great chin before, but after three or four, two or three knockouts, you don't have a great chin anymore. So now, mentally, you can't ever get anybody out of a fight because in the back of somebody's mind, they know if I can just, if, if we're fighting and I know that if I can just hit you hard once, you'll go out. No matter how much you dominate me, you can never break me because I know that all it takes is one shot, literally one shot, and you're done. 
So you can't break someone mentally and you have to change your whole approach to fighting because now you're trying to protect yourself from damage. Like, this is... I'm not saying he can't be a good fighter. I'm not saying they can't turn it around. But the way they have handled him so far, they, they took a gold mine. They took a hit song, the big, the best singer in the world, and they somehow fumbled the ball. They had a touchdown pass, and they fumbled it in the Super Bowl, in the end zone, with two seconds left. That's what they've done with Aaron Pico. They basically threw the ball in the end zone where they should have run beast mode. That's what his, his management has done so far with him. And I, I'm rooting for him. I would like him to go well, but I hope every fighter sees – how they handle this guy, and they go the opposite way. You do not have to face the best right out of the box. Take your time, take your steps, move forward. It happens in everything. In jiu-jitsu, you don't go from white belt to, to purple belt, do you? No. Not unless if you buy it. Yeah, there you go. And so they use his publicity, they use his fame, and they put him in there, and they blame Scott Coker. It's not Coker's fault. Coker owes him nothing. It's his team's fault. The guys who draw a paycheck from Aaron Pico. It is their job to protect him. It is their job to guide him appropriately, and they failed miserably. I don't want to hear this, this Scott Coker thing. Scott Coker's job was to get ratings, get the biggest stars. That's what he did. And let me add Heather Hardy's management into that, too, because I'm not particularly enamored with them either. So, brief recap, Aaron Pico's management fumbled the ball, and they immediately turned one of the biggest potential stars in mixed martial arts into a bust and an also-ran in less than – what a calendar year! Oh my god, just embarrassing. And tr- and just from personal experience, I have told fighters before: do not take this fight, do not put this guy in this this early. You do not need to do this. This is a business. This isn't ego. This is a business. Treat it as such. And somebody did not treat this as a business. As a result, Pico's suffering. He's on his third camp now, and he's what got his second or third brutal knockout in less than seven fights. Good job there. Great handling. This is why mixed martial arts isn't considered a sport. Because no sport would do this to a, a top-end prospect. No sport would do this to a top-end prospect. None. Except yeah, for mixed I mean, martial he's, arts. He's, he's four and three now, and um, it four is what it is. Knockout losses. Yep. Right. Well, no. Well, the first one could have been a knockout, but it was a knockout into a submission. Oh, excuse me. Thank you for correcting me. It was a knockout, and it was a knockout into a. Oh, I choked him out because he was already out before his head hit, head hit the ground. Yeah, basically, it would have been it. Yeah, you're right. He, he definitely could have walked off from that. But that's it, man. We're done for this day. Uh, we'll be back next weekend with a lot more content. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, and have a great and safe weekend, everybody. Raphael, get some rest, man. There's no, leave me alone. Let me be. There's money to be made out in these streets. I hate you, man. I hate you. All right, man. I'll talk to you next week. All right.